The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading this morning is John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns, and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment, at the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, 
woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once they came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The word of God for the people of God. Man, Kevin's prayer for New England made me kind of want to go plant a church in rural New England. It's kind of fun to think about what God's doing there. Um, hey, I noticed you 11 a.m. people are getting real predictable about where you sit in the room. I could almost lay this room out. If you just gave me a map, I could just lay the 11 a.m. service out as far as where you're going to sit, which is fine, except I just need to remind you that next week is Easter, and so it's going to mess all this up, all right? So just come with a hospitable, generous spirit next week, uh, because I imagine the room will be semi-full, and of course, we're changing the service times a little bit, and so it's going to sort of mess up your rhythm. Hope that's okay. We want people to know Jesus. Uh, so invite your neighbors, invite your friends. Uh, let me remind you, so Good Friday, 7 p.m., we'll have a Good Friday service here. That's a very somber and reflective service focused on the reading of Scripture and sort of uh, reflecting on the story of Jesus' crucifixion and death. 
Then on Saturday night, we have a Holy Saturday baptism. We're going to baptize a bunch of people, but that's not just about those people being baptized. It's also a, a little worship service. It's a chance for us to reflect on uh, the, the turning of darkness into light. The early church called this the Easter Vigil. It was the service on Saturday night before Sunday morning, so it won't be a long service, but as these folks come before the church to be baptized, we're also going to celebrate what baptism means and the victory of Jesus over death. And then, of course, Easter Sunday, uh, 8 a.m., 9.30 a.m., 11 a.m., three services, and so you can choose which of those you want to go to. And um, as I said, uh, invite folks. We want to be as hospitable as possible and um, open up our doors to the city and to our neighbors and to anyone who wants to come and, uh, and hear the story of the resurrection with us. As you know, if you've been paying attention to your uh, weekly update video, um, I had the privilege a couple weeks ago to travel to Washington, D.C., and I brought along some travel photos. There's me and my son, Louis, in front of the Capitol. Um, I was invited by my uncle, John, who is a U.S. senator from South Dakota. Uh, that's him. And so he invited me to be the guest chaplain on the floor of the U.S. Senate, which was, of course, a great privilege and an honor. And um, I just, as we were sort of in Washington, D.C., here's what hit me. This place has a unique sort of power. Like there's a symbolic reality that is Washington, D.C., right? Like on the one hand, it's just a city in America like any other city. But on the other hand, it represents the government of the United States. It's the place from which the power of the United States emanates. All the decisions made there affect all of our lives and not just our lives, but many people throughout the world. It's, it's the, the seat of government. Well, in a like manner, John, the writer in chapter 19, wants to bring us to a place from which the, the government of the kingdom of God emanates. It's a hill called Golgotha in Aramaic, Calvary in Latin. This is the place from which the government of God's kingdom emanates. The subject of John 19, as you know, is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And this is very central to the story of Christianity. I imagine if you have encountered any kind of teaching about Christianity, this is not new to you. What's interesting about John's narration of the story is that he places the theme of kingship at the center. You might have noticed how often Pilate in the trial of Jesus mentions that he's the king of the Jews, and even places a sign on the cross that says as much. This is the paradox at the heart of Christianity, the good news of a crucified king. That's what the gospel is. So, so let's be honest about the reality of what makes belief in the gospel challenging for all of us. It's something like this. We know from the scriptures that there's this, supposedly this thing called the kingdom of God, that there is a God who reigns and rules over the universe, that the Lord Jesus Christ became flesh, lived and died on our behalf and is now risen and that now the kingdom of God is being proclaimed throughout the world. There's this thing called the kingdom of God. And yet, if there were such a thing, why would life be so difficult? Why do we still encounter suffering and pain and hardship violence and war and oppression, why would the world still be the way it is if there really is a God who rules in love and holiness over it? That's the paradox at the heart of Christianity. And John wants you to see, actually, 
That's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is the crucified king. Jesus' death brings together the themes of God's kingdom and the themes of suffering and death. I think we have a a, a way we think sometimes that sort of goes like this. The cross was something Jesus had to go through or experience on his way to being enthroned as king because of the resurrection and being seated at the right hand of God. But on the contrary, the church fathers used to say it this way, the Lord Jesus reigns from the tree. One modern writer says it this way, the cross is the throne from which Jesus rules. John wants to introduce us this morning to the crucified king. He wants us to see the cross, not as something Jesus had to endure to get to his kingship, but as the center point of the kingdom of God. Calvary, Golgotha, the cross, is the Washington, D.C. of God's kingdom. It's the place from which the government of God's kingdom emanates. And so here's the question I want to put before you this morning. It's simply this. Is the crucified king your king? Is the crucified king your king? Is this the one who rules your life? Is this the one to whom you offer honor and loyalty and worship and obedience? The reason that question matters, first of all, it's the question the text is putting before us. But second, it matters for us because I think many of the ways that we have heard the gospel in the American context um, have some element of consumerism in them, right? There's something Jesus offers us that sounds like a good deal, and so we want in on that deal. And the danger of that, though there's truth in the fact that much of what Jesus offers us is the thing we were made to enjoy and long for, and it does meet needs and fill up longings in our lives. The danger is that we can conceive of what Jesus came to do as making our lives better. In other words, Jesus is one who exists for our benefit. In reality, the message John is telling is Jesus is the crucified king, and he is gathering a people for himself. And what makes his people unique is that they are the ones who bow the knee to his kingship and worship him and welcome his reign and rule in their lives. Is the crucified king the king of your life, the king of your heart, the king of your home, the one who rules and reigns in your world? Because Jesus is the crucified king, John says, you should bow the knee and come under his rule. So the sermon this morning has five points. I want to look at five things John shows us about the crucified king. The crucified king is crowned with suffering. He rules in humility. He dies with authority. He fulfills the scripture and he opens the way to new life. John wants you to see this crucified king through these five lenses. So first of all, the crucified king is crowned with suffering. If you have a Bible, John chapter 19 Verse 1, the story begins this way. Or maybe we should say the story continues this way, following on chapter 18. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. 
There's a lot going on behind and underneath the text here. And so let me bring you into the political situation of the first century A.D. Jerusalem, as you know, is a beloved city for the Jewish people and has been at this time for centuries. And Jerusalem is populated largely by Jewish people, yet at this time in history, it's ruled politically by the Roman Empire. It's been subsumed into the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire has three levels of government. There's the emperor in Rome. There's a provincial governor who rules from Syria. And then there's the local procurator or prefect of Judea. That's who Pontius Pilate is. And he held that role from 26 to 32 AD. For six years of human history, this man, Pilate, was the procurator over Judea. It's kind of like being the undersecretary of transportation or something like that. It's like a a mid-level cabinet role in the Roman government. According to the, the Jewish historian Philo, Pilate was rigid and stubbornly harsh of a spiteful disposition. Wouldn't you love to be remembered for all of history that way? Um, and so Pilate is not beloved by the Jewish people. And as you can see in the text, there's sort of this uneasy relationship between the Jewish leaders and Pilate, the Roman uh, prefect of Judea. Um, here's, here's what's going on. About 20 years before this, there was another prefect of Judea named Herod Archelaus. He wasn't a very good ruler. The Jewish people didn't like him very well. So they sent a delegation to the emperor in Rome and had him deposed. And Pilate is aware the same thing could happen to him at any time. He must honor the power these Jewish leaders have in the Roman Empire. At the same time, again, about 20 years before this moment, there had been an uprising among some Jewish rebels led by a guy named Judas the Galilean. And in response to that uprising, the Roman Empire had clamped down firmly on Jewish power in Jerusalem, such that to even go put on the robe that the high priest wore during worship, he had to get the key from Pilate. Like you couldn't even open the robe closet without Pilate handing you the key. That's how much the Jewish people were under the thumb of Roman power. So there's this political struggle back and forth, and Jesus has now become a pawn in this little power game. What Pilate is doing, because the Jewish people have brought Jesus forward and said, we want this guy crucified, Pilate in verse 1 flogs him as sort of a way of doing something. He wants, to be, he wants to say, look, I've done something. I flogged this guy. I haven't found any guilt in him. And the text tells us three times that judicially, Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus. And yet, he wants to show some kind of, you know, meaningful response to the Jewish leaders, and so he has Jesus flogged. But because of the ill will between Pilate and the Jewish leaders, he can't stop there. So he goes on and puts a crown of thorns on Jesus' head and puts a purple robe on him and then brings him out before them in sort of this mock coronation ceremony. It's as though Pilate is saying, hey, you Jewish people, here's your king. Isn't he a picture of nobility and glory? Doesn't he look wonderful? Isn't this the kind of person you'd want to reign over you? He's, he's mocking them in bringing Jesus out clothed this way. But the irony of the text is this, what Pilate intends as mockery and humiliation actually shows the glory of Jesus and what he's come to do. Notice that he's wearing a crown of thorns. And you know where else we see thorns in the Bible? 
Thorns symbolize always in Scripture the curse of God on sin. Genesis chapter 3, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. The crucified king, crowned with thorns, has come to bear the curse of sin on behalf of his people. This is the most noble and most regal thing he will do, is in place of humanity, he will bear the curse of sin. He's crowned with suffering, not accidentally, but intentionally. Here's how the early church father, Cyril of Alexandria, put it. Jesus was scourged unjustly so that he might deliver us from the punishment we deserved. He was beaten and struck, so that, and struck so that we might beat Satan who had beaten us and that we might escape from the sin that clings to us. For if we think correctly, we shall believe that all of Christ's sufferings were for us and on our behalf and that they have the power to release and deliver us from all those calamities we have deserved because of our rebellion against God. Jesus is suffering in our place. He's bearing the curse that we deserve. And so when Jesus steps out of Pilate's tribunal with the crown of thorns on his head, though Pilate means it as mockery, it's a picture for us of the very work Jesus has come to do. He's going to bear the curse. The crucified king is crowned with suffering. His crown is not accidental, but intentional. Not only that, but the crucified king rules in humility. Look at verse Six, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. There's the repetition. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, catch this, he was even more afraid. Pilate was already afraid. Now he's even more afraid. What John is cluing you into is that the authority that Pilate carries is an authority grounded in fear. You all know people who hold positions of power, and what keeps them in power is their fear of losing power, right? In fact, many politicians are like this. The thing that keeps them in power is the fear of what would it be like if they didn't have power. That's the kind of authority Pilate carries in this story. He's responding to Jesus out of his own fear, and all the decisions he makes are rooted in his fear of what will happen if he doesn't placate these Jewish leaders, of what will happen if he condemns an innocent man to death, of what might happen if he loses his position of power and authority. In contrast, look at the authority of Jesus. Verse 9, Pilate entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Can't you hear in that the power play of a fearful leader? Hey, talk to me. Don't you realize I have authority over you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Isn't it clear who rules this moment? Isn't it clear who's really in authority in the story? It's not Pilate. Pilate has positional authority. 
But Jesus is the one who carries true authority. And notice that Jesus rules, he carries his authority with humility. There's a sense here of submission to the Father's will. He understands, Pilate, the reason you've been given authority in this moment to pronounce a judgment on me is because such authority has been given to you from above. Jesus is submitted to the Father's will. By the way, it helps us to do a little theological work here because sometimes the way that Christians speak about what happened to Jesus on the cross is as though the Father and the Son are sort of working against each other. Right? Like the Father has a problem with us because we've sinned against him, and so the Son is the solution to that problem. And you see, if you start thinking that way, now we have the Father and the Son who are supposedly one in essence, as we profess in the Nicene Creed, yet they're working against each other. Kind of weird, right? It's not what happened. Okay? Listen to Cyril of Alexandria commenting on this verse. He says, When Jesus says that power was given to Pilate from above, He does not mean that God the Father inflicted crucifixion on his own son against his will. Rather, he means that the only begotten himself gave himself to suffer for us. It is then plainly the consent and approval of the Father that is here said to have been given, and the pleasure of the Son is also clearly signified. Friends, Father and Son are working together for the redemption of humanity, and Pilate is merely the human means of all of that coming to fruition. Jesus rules in humility. He is in total authority over everything that happens, and yet he humbles himself under this six-year provincial ruler and ultimately under the sovereign hand of God. So notice what happens next in the story It says, from that on, Pilate sought to release him. So now Pilate knows this is unjust. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So I want you to notice the deft card the Jewish leaders are playing here. They're saying, hey, actually, since you, Pilate, just acknowledged that this is the quote-unquote king of the Jews... The problem for you is everyone in the Roman Empire who says he's a king is now competing with Caesar. So Pilate, if you don't do something, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the emperor and tell him there's a guy in Judea claiming to be king and you didn't do anything. Pilate knows at this point that he's backed into a corner and that the political realities are going to demand that he do something. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down in the judgment seat. And you can see at this moment, Pilate's been beaten. He says in verse 14, he said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? I mean, do you hear the spite and the sarcasm where this man who knows he's been outmaneuvered is now going to get every last dig that he can against these people that he's annoyed with? And so he's going to keep bringing up the fact that this bruised, battered, bloodied, thorn-crowned man is their supposed king. The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And when they say that, Pilate has gotten his revenge. And here's why. Because every good Jewish person in the first century knew there's only one who's king over Israel, and that's God himself. The Jewish people were fierce monotheists. 
And the proclamation of the Psalms is the Lord is king. This is what they professed in the temple every week. And yet he's just gotten them to say, we have no king except Caesar. And I imagine at this moment, Pilate is looking at them with that look that says, oh, did you hear what you just said? So now he delivers them over to them to be crucified. Because now, even though Pilate's got his hands tied and he's backed into a corner, he's kind of gotten his revenge. This whole time, as this whole power play is going on, the crucified king is ruling in humility, saying not a word, submitted to the Father's will for our salvation. Third, the crucified king dies with authority. Look at the, the record of Jesus' death. Let's begin in verse 16. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others on either side and Jesus between them. Jump down to verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Notice how John speaks of Jesus' death. The crucified king does not have his life taken from him. He lays it down. He is in control of when he dies and how he dies, and he chooses to give up his spirit. This is in keeping with what John wrote back in chapter 10 of this gospel, which we talked about sometime in the fall, when Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. John wants you to be absolutely clear. This is not Jesus the victim. This is Jesus the victor. The phrase Jesus speaks from the cross, it is finished, is rooted in the Greek term telos, which if you've studied philosophy or literature might be a word you're familiar with. It's the word in Greek that speaks of the end or the goal or the purpose of something. In other words, friends, when Jesus says, it is finished, he's saying, I have accomplished the goal for which I've come. To say it the way one commentator says, this is not a cry of desolation. It is an announcement of triumph. Jesus dies as a conqueror. Listen to this amazing observation from the church father Eusebius. He says this, Jesus did not wait for death, which was lagging behind, as it were, in fear to come to him. Instead, he pursued it from behind and drove it on and trampled it under his feet as it was fleeing. He burst the eternal gates of death's dark realms and made a road of return again back to life. That's how Jesus went after death. Death didn't come for him he came for death. Jesus dies with authority. He is the victor, not the victim. And so, almost 200 years ago now, Samuel Gandhi, a British poet, wrote this hymn. His be the victor's name who fought the fight alone. Triumphant saints no honor claim. His conquest was their own. By weakness and defeat, he won a glorious crown, trod all our foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. He, Satan's power, laid low. 
made sin, he sin or through, bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. That's the paradox John wants you to see. In death, Jesus is killing death. By his suffering, he is triumphing. By weakness and defeat, he won a glorious crown. The crucified king dies with authority. Fourth, the crucified king fulfills the scripture. Three times in this text, John explicitly mentioned this happened to fulfill the scripture. The first is in verses 23 and 24 where it speaks of the soldiers casting lot for his clothing. And John writes, this was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. That quote is from Psalm 22, which I encourage you sometime this week to read. If you read Psalm 22 and imagine Jesus on the cross, reading it aloud, it will take on a whole new meaning for you. It's one of the clearest psalms that speaks to what Jesus experienced on the cross. The second place John says scripture was fulfilled is in verse 28 where he writes, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. The scripture in mind here is Psalm 69, where the psalmist says, I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. The third place that John speaks of the fulfillment of Scripture is in verses 36 and 37. When it talks about the soldier piercing the side of Jesus, John writes, These things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's Psalm 34. And another Scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. That second quotation is from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. And I want to read it with you because the pronouns are quite interesting. Look what Zechariah says in Zechariah 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. On that day the day when they look on the one whom they've pierced. There shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. John says that is what's happening as Jesus dies. The crucified king fulfills the scripture. Now, why is this important? Why does this matter? Is this just sort of like, um, you know, like a nerdy Bible quiz thing? It's like, oh, cool, some scriptures in the Old Testament connect to these scriptures in the New Testament. Is that what's going on here? No. Why does John care that we understand that in his death, Jesus is fulfilling scripture? This is important for at least two reasons. One, John wants you to understand that Jesus is self-aware of his role. Jesus understands what he has come to do, and he understands that he is carrying forward the vocation and the calling of Israel. Jesus understands that what he is doing in his death is fulfilling the prophetic hope of the Old Testament and stepping in as the suffering servant who Isaiah prophesied would come and would deliver God's people from their sin. The clearest way that we know that John wants you to see this is in verse 28. Notice it again. He says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, so he's telling you what Jesus knows, said 
to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Why did Jesus talk about his thirst from the cross? To fulfill scripture. Because Jesus was self-consciously aware that he was carrying forward the role of David in the Psalms. That those Psalms spoke of him and that in his death, he was fulfilling that role. John wants you to understand Jesus knows what role he plays in the redemptive story. Not only that, but John wants you to see this moment, the cross, is the center of the biblical storyline. Jesus is not just fulfilling individual prophecies. It's not just like, you know, turning your Bible to Psalm 34 and Psalm 69 and Zechariah, and can't you see that Jesus is fulfilling these little neat individual verses? The point of what John is saying is, what's happening now is the fulfillment of the whole story of the Old Testament. The story of Israel culminates in the crucifixion of Jesus. Everything that happened in the Old Testament is a pointer to this moment. This is why Jesus is the second Adam, as Paul says in Romans. Jesus is the greater Moses, the greater Joshua, the greater David, as we just sang a few moments ago. He's the greater Solomon. He's the suffering servant of whom Isaiah spoke. He's the greater Daniel. Every one of these Old Testament leaders and saints and figures points us to and prepares us for the work of Jesus. And the church fathers loved making this connection. Listen to Tertullian, one of the earliest writers, writing in about 200 AD, notices this connection in the story. Isaac, the son of Abraham, personally carried the wood for his own sacrifice. But these were mysteries that were being kept for perfect fulfillment in the times of Christ. Christ carried his wood on his own shoulders, for he chose to be made a sacrifice on behalf of all. Do you see how Tertullian is reading scripture? He's not saying, oh, Jesus carried some wood, Isaac carried some wood, cool connection. What he said is, when Isaac carried the wood on his back, this was a mystery that was being kept for perfect fulfillment in the times of Christ. In other words, why did God have Isaac do that? Because God was setting us up to expect one who would carry the wood and be the true sacrifice that Isaac wasn't but pointed to. All of that happened to get us ready for Jesus. It's not coincidence. It's not just two neat themes and two stories that happen to connect together. Jesus self-consciously is carrying forward all of this storyline and fulfilling it in his death. Jesus, the crucified king, fulfills the scripture. Here's why that matters for you, because you're part of a way bigger story. You're an inheritor of a story that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, and it goes through Moses and Abraham and Joshua and David and Esther and the entire Old Testament story. That's your story. That story is yours because Jesus is the inheritor of that story who passes it on to his people. Finally, the crucified king opens the way to new life. John 19, verses 33 and 34. So the Jewish leaders, because the Sabbath is coming, asked Pilate to have the legs broken of these criminals who are being crucified. So the soldiers come and do that. But when they came to Jesus, verse 33, they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. I'll leave it to the cardiologists and the thoracic surgeons to explain to us what all is going on here medically. 
I know there are a lot of you who are medical people, and there's been a bunch of fascinating research done on what's happening here. And you can go read it all if you want to, but basically what most scholars think is the level of trauma Jesus has already sustained by this point has made his chest cavity already fill up with fluid. And so when his side is pierced, that fluid flows out and it's already separated into blood and a clear liquid that looks like water. The point of John telling this, John wants us to understand Jesus is dead. Like he didn't seem like he was dead. He wasn't just kind of dead. He wasn't mostly dead, to quote the princess bride. He is all dead, (laughs) right? Jesus is thoroughly dead. The soldiers knew it. That's why they didn't break his legs. They stabbed his side and blood and water came out in case you thought he wasn't dead. He absolutely positively is bodily dead. So this heads off any theory that says, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Maybe he was just real, real unconscious. He is dead. And that's what John wants you to understand. But yet, there's a deeper symbolism here. Think about how John has already spoken of water in this gospel. Back in chapter 4, Jesus says to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water in him welling up to eternal life. Water and life are connected. In John chapter 7, at the feast in Jerusalem, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John has already set us up to understand that in some way, Jesus is the living water who's being offered for our benefit. And there's an even more important connection here that goes all the way back to the Old Testament book of Exodus. As God's people were journeying out of Egypt and came to the rock at Horeb, and were thirsty. And God said to Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people shall drink. John wants you to see that's what happened on the cross. The rock himself, the refuge of God's people, was struck and out of him poured water that was the healing and cleansing of the nations. And so we sang moments ago, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. This hymn writer understands the symbolism of the Gospel of John. That in the death of Jesus, the crucified king opens the way to new life. It is his death that makes life possible and available to us. That hymn says, Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. We need a double cure for sin. We need to be forgiven, set free from the curse that is upon us because of sin. That's what the blood of Jesus does. We also need to be made pure, cleansed from our impurity and our corruption. And that's what the water of baptism does. And more importantly, the water of Jesus' own life. It's not an accident in the story that John tells that Pilate has the sign on the cross written in three languages. Aramaic, 
Greek and Latin. Aramaic is the dialect of the common people around Jerusalem. Greek is the written language of the day, and Latin is becoming the lingua franca of the Roman Empire and will be for another thousand years. The point that John wants you to see is Pilate himself declared that Jesus was king in a way that allowed everybody to see it and know it. This is the world's true king, and all may come to him and find healing and forgiveness and cleansing. The crucified king opens the way to new life. This is the story John is telling us, not just that Jesus was crucified, but that Jesus is the king who reigns and rules from the cross. So is the crucified king your king? Is this the one you follow, you are submitted to, you obey and love and trust and worship? Is this king your king? Listen to me. He's the only king worth following. All other kings and all other kingdoms look a lot like Pilate and the chief priests and scribes. It's about power and protecting your authority and using fear to intimidate and making the best pragmatic play you can to get what you need. Only Jesus offers you a kingdom where he has suffered on your behalf where he's fulfilled the story that has him at the center, where he's opening up new life for you. He rules in humility and his authority is trustworthy. And he dies with authority in a way that conquers death itself. Is the crucified king your king? Does this king rule your life? Where in your life right now do you need to more experience the rule and reign of Jesus? Where do you need to submit to him And allow him to be your true king. Listen, here's the beautiful thing about the story John is telling. The Bible doesn't end after the gospel of John. John is saying his kingdom is established on the cross and from the cross. But this kingdom is still going forward today. We are now the people of Jesus. All who belong to him and who come to him and allow his suffering to pay the debt for their sin are now called to be part of his people, and this now is the kingdom that's offered to the whole world. You live in a city that needs this kingdom. You live around neighbors who need this king, who are bound by all kinds of other kings and all kinds of other kingdoms, and only this one can offer life and freedom and joy and the kind of wonderful authority that is worth submitting to and following. So not only do you get to submit to this king, you now get to be an agent and an ambassador of his kingdom to the whole world around you. Let's pray and worship this king together. Our Lord Jesus, thank you that you reign from the cross. That the crucifixion is not something that you had to get through in order to get to the resurrection or even being enthroned at the right hand of God, as glorious as those things are. But that it's the cross itself that establishes your kingdom and that shows the kind of king you are. So thank you that you suffered in our place. Thank you that you ruled in quiet humility, trusting the Father's will. Thank you that you conquered death in your death. That you fulfilled the story of Scripture and the hopes of God's people throughout history that you have opened the way to new life. So let us now come to you 
in humble worship and adoration and honor, offering our lives as yours and celebrating again the glorious good news of a king and a kingdom unlike any other. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.